Welcome to Cabeza de Vaca. Episode 25, The Gospel According to Cabeza de Vaca. I'm Brandon Seal. The memory of Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, Alonso Castillo, Andrés Dorantes, and Esteban endured for a couple of generations in native North America. Expeditions into northern Mexico in 1542, 1565, and 1582, and perhaps others, found stories still circulating about the three white and one black medicine man who had passed through there years earlier. In 1629, Cabeza de Vaca's people of the cows came seeking out nearby Franciscan missionaries after reportedly receiving visions of a so-called Lady in Blue, a Spanish nun who had mentally projected herself through space and time to prepare them for Christian conversion. Was it a coincidence that these people of the cows, the most advanced of all the tribes that Cabeza de Vaca and his companions encountered, should have then become some of the earliest and most eager recruits to the Franciscan missions of the area? It's fun to imagine that maybe the four old expeditionaries had laid a foundation for Christianity amongst the tribe, but I admit that it's a reach. As late as 1643, one of the early settlers of Monterrey, Alonso de Leon, whose son actually, by the same name, would lead some of the first organized Spanish entradas into Texas, recorded Indians in Nuevo León who told stories of a white man who had passed through the area 100 years before performing great cures. De Leon believed that they were referring to Cabeza de Vaca. And again, interestingly, these so-called Coahuiltecan tribes of northern Mexico were among the first to embrace mission life. Had they retained enough memory of the four expeditionaries' gospel to identify it with the words of the later Franciscan missionaries? Meh, it's fun to think about, but if I'm being honest, it seems pretty attenuated. The reality is that the material legacy of the four old Narvaez expeditionaries in North America was pretty minimal. Their impact on their own culture, however, may have been more significant. Within a month or so of the expeditionary's arrival in Mexico City in July of 1536, Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, and Dorantes produced a document known to history as the Joint Report, their collective account of everything they had seen and endured during their eight years wandering the continent. This report became the foundation for Cabeza de Vaca's solo version of events that he published in 1542, known today as the Relación, and then reworked in 1555 as Naufragios which means shipwrecks, or more generally, disasters, calamities. These writings had an immediate effect. Within a year of the publication of the Expeditionary's joint report describing the devastation wrought by Castilian slavers in Culiacán, the governor of that province was removed and recalled to Castile. Then, the famous priest Bartolomé de las Casas, the royal protector of the Indians, used Cabeza de Vaca's account in his report to support arguments in favor of more humane treatment of the native populations. And this all culminated in 1542 with the promulgation of the so-called New Laws of the Indies for the Good Treatment and Preservation of the Indians, which officially ended Indian slavery in the Hispanic New World. And indeed, from this point forward, Spain would always have a different view of the native population of the Americas in comparison to other European powers. As Professor Gilbert Hinojosa at Incarnate Word here in San Antonio pointed out to me, the population of the Spanish-speaking Americas is still primarily indigenous in origin. 
And though the integration of Hispanic and indigenous populations in Latin America has always been imperfect, if you were a Native American watching European sails come over the horizon during the age of exploration, your DNA fared a much better chance of being passed on if those sails were Spanish rather than, say, English. But the Expeditionary's joint report wasn't prepared only to make the case for the humane treatment of Native Americans. It seems like it had actually been prepared by Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, and Durantes in anticipation of asking the Crown for permission to lead a new expedition into North America. It's a sign of how indefatigable these men were and how powerfully that Castilian Mandato Real continued to drive them. And it's one of those historical what-if scenarios that's pretty fascinating to think about. Imagine what that would have been like. These four old expeditionaries, the most widely traveled men in North America, returning to proselytize and peaceably conquer the natives who already reverenced them as great religious leaders, the four supported now by the might and supply chain of the Castilian crown, but focused on effectuating their ideal conquest based on Christian brotherhood rather than by arms. This must have been the fantasy that the expeditionaries entertained, anyway. Not long after arriving in Mexico City, however, Alonso Castillo, that pious son of a doctor from Salamanca, decided to settle down. After all he'd gone through, who can blame him? He married the wealthy widow of another conquistador, a marriage that brought with it a nice encomienda of land and natives. He would live out the rest of his life in Mexico City, raising three daughters there and achieving some civic distinction as a royal inspector, city councilman, and even as the alcalde of the city in 1540. He died sometime around 1548. Dorantes held on to the dream of returning north for a bit longer. He and Cabeza de Vaca planned to go to Castile in early 1537 to petition the king for the rights to Narvaez's old adelantamiento, La Florida. But Dorantes's ship was almost sunk immediately by a Caribbean storm. And that was enough for the old expeditionary. He abandoned his voyage and returned to Mexico City. He too married a wealthy widow, also with a nice little encomienda to recommend her. At one point, the viceroy tried to convince him to lead an expedition back into the north, but Durantes declined. He wasn't opposed to returning to military service. He apparently fought in several campaigns in Jalisco and other parts of New Spain, and he dutifully sought and fulfilled the other administrative offices expected of men of his rank. But he also would never venture far from Castilian society again. In subsequent years, Durantes fathered three daughters and a son, who half a century later would write his own account of his father's travels, in which he vouched for the quote-unquote miraculous deeds that his father and his three companions performed. Andres Durantes died sometime around 1556 or so. Cabeza de Vaca, however, was as single-minded as ever. He was fixated on the idea of returning to North America, by which I mean the lands north of New Spain. This time, however, he intended to return as the royal governor. He rested in Mexico City for only a month or two before booking passage back to Castile. His usual luck followed him along the way, though. He was supposed to sail in late 1536, but that ship capsized in port. Departing then in early 1537, now with Durantes, and this time in a convoy of three ships bound for Havana, two of those ships started taking on water during a storm, including the one that Durantes was on. 
And this, of course, is where Dorantes had turned back. But Cabeza de Vaca pressed on, through another hurricane near Bermuda, in pursuit by French pirates on the last leg of his journey. On August 9th, 1537, however, he set foot on Iberian soil for the first time in more than a decade. But he arrived just a few months too late. Earlier that year, the king had commissioned Hernando de Soto to lead a new expedition to North America, or more specifically, to the lands between modern-day Texas and Florida. After some discussion with de Soto, Cabeza de Vaca declined to take a subordinate position in his expedition. He seemed to feel that his next career step was to command, not to serve a second-in-command on another expedition to North America. And so it was that neither Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, nor Dorantes would ever return to the North American wilderness. There was, in fact, only one of the four old expeditionaries who would return to the land of his captivity. And it was the man for whom that captivity may have been indistinguishable, or even preferable, dare we say, to the captivity with which he lived in Castilian society. In the wilds of North America, Esteban, that black Arab from Azenmore, had been perhaps the most important member of the party because of his facility with languages and his ability to communicate with the natives. He was, at the very least, a nearly co-equal collaborator. But once back inside the structures of Castilian society, he returned to his former station, symbolized by how quickly he starts to slip from view in the three Castilian expeditionaries' narratives as soon as they were reunited with their countrymen. Which isn't to say that people didn't appreciate Esteban's worth. The viceroy initially tried to buy him from Durantes for 500 pesos, a spectacular sum at that time. And Durantes declined him. It's charming to think that this was maybe out of some sense of loyalty or something, but it might just as well have been that Durantes wanted to retain Esteban for his own hoped-for return north. Who knows? But somehow or another, Esteban did end up in the viceroy's service the viceroy attaching him, in fact, to the same expedition north which Dorantes had declined to lead. That 1539 expedition, commanded instead by a priest, Fray Marcos de Niza, backtracked the four expeditionaries' trail up the Mexican Pacific coast in search now of the famed Seven Cities of Gold. Esteban traveled ahead of the rest of the column with an entourage of his own, leading with a staff and gourds as insignia of his authority. Eventually, Esteban reconnected with some of the tribes that he had been amongst just four years prior, and he fell back into his old routine, performing cures, trading goods, and paving the way for the rest of the expedition north through Sonora, and ultimately up into modern-day Arizona. And then one day, amongst the Zuni tribe in modern-day New Mexico, Esteban disappeared. There's no eyewitness version of exactly what happened to him, but the conventional account holds that the Zunis filled Esteban, quote, full of arrows like a Saint Sebastian, end quote. That account comes, however, from Fray Marcos de Nisa, who would later be exposed as a terrific liar. Several modern novelists and biographers have instead imagined Esteban simply ditching the friar's expedition and going off to live amongst the natives amongst whom he'd been revered as a child of the sun, rather than serving a society that viewed him simply as a child of ham. And there's a tantalizing clue that kind of supports this. Even down to the present day, a bearded, black-skinned shaman that looks unlike anything else in the Native American pantheon 
figures prominently in Zuni and Hopi mythology. It would be fitting and poetic if this was a vestigial memory of the great medicine man Estevan, the only of the four old Narvaez expeditionaries to return to the northern part of the continent, and the only of the four who would die there. In the end, Cabeza de Vaca, the oldest of the four surviving expeditionaries, seems to have outlived a lot of them. And yet he didn't just slide into a comfortable retirement once he reached Castile. In fact, he didn't spend much time at all with his friends or family or his wife. He didn't spend much time doing anything other than trying to corral as many favors as he could to support him in his bid for a royal command somewhere in the Americas. Around Christmas of 1537, he secured a meeting with the king, who was duly impressed by his story and awarded him the Adelantamiento of the Rio de la Plata province, corresponding more or less to modern-day Uruguay and Argentina. And yet, in the Rio de la Plata, Cabeza de Vaca would encounter something even more dangerous than hostile natives. He would run up against the entrenched interests of other Castilians, for whom his little quirks like preferring to go about barefoot and his prohibition against plundering allied natives did nothing to win them over. And so within a few years of Cabeza de Vaca's arrival in South America, his province mutinied against him. In September of 1545, he was sent back to Castile in chains and prosecuted for 32 different and largely trumped-up offenses. He would spend the next three months in jail, six months after that under house arrest, a year after that in confinement at court, and the next four years continuing to fight the charges through Castile's painfully slow legal system. On March 18, 1551, he was convicted of the charges against him, stripped of all his titles, banned from ever returning to the New World, and exiled to a penal colony in Algeria. This is probably not the end of the story you were expecting. And maybe this is why Cabeza de Vaca's story hasn't been made into an American movie yet, because this isn't the story arc that we expect or want for someone who's endured what Cabeza de Vaca has endured and been transformed in the way that we've seen him transformed. And yet, as unjust as it may seem to us, the little evidence we have suggests that Cabeza de Vaca endured the injustices of the civilized world with the same equanimity with which he endured those of the North American wilderness. Which isn't to say that he stopped fighting, however. And eventually, his persistence was borne out. After a few more years, a later court overturned his 1551 conviction and commuted his sentence. And in 1555, all of the charges that had been brought against Cabeza de Vaca were permanently dismissed. Despite some older biographies characterizing Cabeza de Vaca's later years as poor and undistinguished, it actually seems like he was able to settle back into a life of relative comfort and esteem in his hometown of Jerez de la Frontera, Jerez the border town in English, a town whose name recalled all the ways that Cabeza de Vaca's ancestors had dutifully pushed the Castilian frontier onward and outward. It was fitting for him then that when he died around 1559, Cabeza de Vaca, the man who had spent almost two decades in the prime of his life on the king's American frontier, was buried, most likely anyway, alongside his ancestors in the Real Convento de Santo Domingo in Jerez de la Frontera, alongside his grandfather, Pedro de Vera, conqueror of the Canary Islands, among others. For some reason, it seems like one of our favorite games these days is sitting in moral judgment of historical figures who are no longer alive to defend themselves. 
Not surprisingly, defendants in such cases don't typically come out looking very good. And Cabeza de Vaca would be no exception. I mean, what should we do with the parts of his story that seem so radically incompatible with our own values? His tireless urge to conquer other people, the ritual marauding that he and his companions tolerated in order to move themselves across North America, and the massive dislocation of Native Americans that his presence in the Americas foreshadowed. In that light, to heroically recast his survival story as a quote-unquote ideal conquest seems like a supremely insensitive whitewashing of the opening of the decimation of an entire continent's worth of people. And if you want to keep being irritated by Cabeza de Vaca, look no further than all of his hyper-biblical allusions. For example, depicting himself as a castaway, crawling onto the island of Malado, as he called it, just like Paul crawling onto the shores of Malta after his shipwreck. Or Cabeza de Vaca's encounter with a mysterious burning bush, just like Moses on the mountain. Or his resurrection of the dead Indian, like Jesus with Lazarus. All this just to name a few. Are we to take this as Cabeza de Vaca not so subtly comparing himself to Paul, Moses, and Jesus? I mean, at least pick just one model for your sanctimoniousness and stick with it, man. I have two big problems with this kind of moral grandstanding, however. One, it's lazy. It's us giving ourselves permission not to have to learn anything from the almost unfathomable ordeal that Cabeza de Vaca and his companions survived simply because we can't relate to some things about them. And in fact, Cabeza de Vaca actually calls us out on this error early in his narrative, through his own example during his first days on Galveston Island. Recall how in the early chapters of his narrative, his fellow expeditionaries, almost to a man, dismissed the natives as primitives that had to be dictated to, as Narvaez's example shows, or savages that couldn't be trusted, see the men who stayed on the beach and ended up eating each other, or beings incapable of reasoning at all, see Cabeza de Vaca himself at the start of his story. But in spite of all of this inherited cultural prejudice, Cabeza de Vaca eventually resolves, almost as a matter of faith, to trust that the natives might still have something to teach him. And his ability to learn from those who otherwise seemed so unrelatable ends up saving his life and ultimately puts him and his companions on the path to their deliverance. And so if Cabeza de Vaca, a 16th century Castilian gentleman, can find a way to relate to subsistence-level Texas hunter-gatherers whose language he could barely even speak and grow from it, how can we say that we moderns can't learn anything from a 16th century Castilian? Or for that matter, from people perhaps even more unrelatable than that? Maybe even from people who don't like us, or who we don't like. But I tell you what, if you can't get there rationally, then do what Cabeza de Vaca ultimately does. Take it on faith, as an axiom for how we should relate to other people. And the second problem that I have with dismissing Cabeza de Vaca as just another self-aggrandizing memoirist is that he won't let you read him that way. Look at the title that he gives to his 1555 edition of his narrative, Naufragios, which yes, literally means shipwrecks, but also means more broadly, disaster or calamities. That's not exactly a triumphant lead-in. And I find that the beauty of his narrative is watching him wrestle with the dark side of everything that he's seeing, doing, and becoming. Malacosa lurks everywhere in this text. Even the allusions that Cabeza de Vaca makes to Paul, Moses, and Jesus, for example, ultimately redound in a really unfavorable way on Cabeza de Vaca. Because each of those three men died in their divine service, 
willingly, whereas Cabeza de Vaca and his companions chose not to. What I mean by this is that the best thing that the four expeditionaries could have done for their hundreds or thousands of native followers would have been to keep them as far away from other Castilians as possible, to have not returned themselves to Castilian society and instead remained with their flock up there in the mountains. Remember, Moses was never allowed to enter the promised land. Jesus had to die on the cross, and even Paul had to lose his head at the end of his race. By making it home alive, the four expeditionaries failed their own faith story in a way. And they failed the natives' faith tradition as well. Shalotl doesn't guide his people to the underworld and then leave them there. Cabeza de Vaca and his companions could have stuck by their native followers once they had brought them into contact with Castilians. And Cabeza de Vaca seems to be realizing this when he tells us toward the very end of his narrative about the 500 Indian slaves marching into Mexico City alongside them on the same day as their triumphant return into Castilian society. It's a detail that totally undercuts any notion of a quote-unquote ideal conquest, but it's also totally consistent with the way that we've seen Cabeza de Vaca contend with the dualities of a world in which good and evil seem to exist as naturally and necessarily alongside each other as life and death. Cabeza de Vaca actually concludes his account with a really, really strange postscript. He jumps back in time nine years and takes us back to Narvaez's ships as they're plying the Florida coast, searching for a place to land. One of the ten women on board, he tells us, a woman with a peculiar gift for prophecy, apparently, came forward one day to speak to the governor. She told him what a Moorish woman, back in the heavily Muslim town of Ornachos, back in Castile, had told her years before. And so it's almost as though Cabeza de Vaca is giving the ultimate other from Castilian society, a Moorish woman, the last word in his narrative. Quote, And this woman said that if Narvaez disembarked in Florida, he at least should avoid marching inland, because she believed that neither he nor anyone else who went inland with him would ever come out. But that if one did come out, that God would perform through him many miracles, though in truth she believed that few, if any, would actually escape. End quote. Well, as Professor Andres Resendez pointed out to me, this is the only time in Cabeza de Vaca's entire narrative where he uses the word miracle. And when he uses it, he's actually using it in like the fifth person. He's telling us what someone told him, a woman on board the ships told Narvaez, that a Moorish woman in Ornachos had told her. And maybe that's because Cabeza de Vaca isn't identifying himself with one of the ones who came out performing many great miracles in this woman's prophecy. Indeed, check out the heading for the chapter, quote, in which the account is given of what else happened to those who went to the Indies and how they all perished, end quote. How they all perished? Read in this light, and given the fact that Cabeza de Vaca has consistently refused to call any of his own deeds miracles, then it starts to sound like Cabeza de Vaca and his companions aren't the ones in the prophecy that came out performing miracles, but that they were just like all the others who perished when Narvaez marched inland. Maybe we're meant to take it that whoever it was that emerged from the wilderness in Culiacán was someone else entirely from whoever it was who had disembarked on the Florida shore eight or nine years prior. Maybe then, The point of Cabeza de Vaca's story isn't his quote-unquote ideal conquest or his cataloging of the greatest run of miracles ever performed this side of Galilee. But maybe instead, the point of the story is as a confessional 
almost of his own transformation and personal growth. In the last paragraph of the prologue to his account, Cabeza de Vaca informs the king that he has no great riches and no new lands to offer him. That all he can offer the crown is his story. Quote, as this is the only thing that a man who came away naked could take out with him, end quote. In returning here one final time to his nakedness, Cabeza de Vaca is reminding us of that theme of vulnerability that just pervades his story. Vulnerability is hard for anyone, harder still for a man, I would argue, and harder still for a hardened conquistador like Cabeza de Vaca. His experience, however, has stripped him down to his core, brought him into primal proximity with his own capacity for good and evil, and transformed him into something different than what he was before. And that's not just incidental to his story. That is precisely how and why he survived, because he allowed himself to be vulnerable and to be open to these kind of changes. But if Cabeza de Vaca leaves us with one other lesson, in addition to the virtue of vulnerability, it's this. It's that it was only through his faith that he found the strength to be as vulnerable as he needed to be. To corrupt a line from Brene Brown's book on vulnerability, faith without vulnerability is dogmatism. But vulnerability without faith is despair. And survivors don't abide despair. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you what a relief it is to finish a series like this, but also what a letdown too. Because I never feel like I do the material full justice, particularly in this case where I feel like I've only scratched the surface of the many aspects of this story that we could have gone deeper on. Cabeza de Vaca's account really is as rich to me as a religious text and as capable of as many interpretations. If you got anything out of my interpretation, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, leave me a review, and or share it on social media. And frankly, if you didn't get anything out of the last dozen hours or so of me talking, then go read the account for yourself and let me know how it speaks to you. And don't forget to check out the webpage associated with this episode on therevardreport.com, home of nonprofit journalism for a better San Antonio. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco, sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. The intro music for this episode is entitled Apache, composed by Kevin Graham and available on Soundstripe. The outro music was composed and performed by Stephen Bennett in the Anagrams. A special thanks to Father David Garcia, to Frank de la Teja with the Texas State Historical Association, to Steve Davis, curator of the Whitliffe Collections at Texas State University, to Professor Andres Resendez at the University of California, Davis, to Dr. Carolyn Boyd with the Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center, and also now with Texas State, and to David Dunham with Texas Monthly as well as Professor Gilbert Hinojosa with Incarnate Word University and Danny Anderson with Trinity University for all their support and suggestions. And for more information about this podcast and our other projects, please check out www.brandonseal.com. <laughs>